0: Well, this afternoon, we arrive at the culminating revelation of all the revelations throughout the Scriptures. It's the revelation of the eternal state. It's the culmination of God's redemptive story in history. It is the revelation of the consummation of the kingdom of God. And it's the final redemption of all things. It's the ultimate reversal of the curse. And it's the curse that has been seen in every age of history since the time of Genesis 3. And so in this way, it also really confirms the veracity of Scripture that from beginning to end, every loose end is tied. Here in Revelation 21, we come full circle back to where the Bible began in its narrative. The first two chapters of the Bible reveal a perfect world that God created and called good with no sin and no curse. Interestingly, the final two chapters of the Bible reveal a perfect world that God will recreate and it will be good and even superior because there will never again be sin or curse. We've been going through highlights in the book of Revelation throughout this year, and I I hope that it's been encouraging to see the the various visions that God has kindly given His church regarding the the sovereign plan unfolding through the reign of Christ. And we've seen just a sort of review that, that Jesus is enthroned in heaven right now. That he is reigning and that he has full authority from the Father to bring redemptive history to its ends. He has full authority to evaluate the churches. In the first couple chapters, you see him speaking to the churches and evaluating their spiritual state. He has ransomed a people from every tribe to follow him. And the, the rest of Revelation tells of how he's going to finish that redemptive plan through the work He did on the cross. We also saw that He has gathered a people who will not merely just be saved, but who will overcome. And that the driving theme of the book is that Christ wants His church, His people, to overcome or to conquer in a hostile world. And we've seen that Jesus has full authority to judge the living and the dead. That in His second coming, He will unleash His wrath as He gathers His people, a comfort to them, and as He judges the world, their terror. And we've seen that He will be the judge who summons all to His throne for final judgment. And today we arrive at the the ultimate point in the timeline that all of this is heading to. The ultimate revelation of the glory and the good Of God and His people, heaven on earth. This is the conclusion of Scripture. And in the immediate context, it's the conclusion of John's revelation, which means we need to remember why this final vision was given to the early churches it was written to, and thus why we need it as the church. It's important to note that. It's important to remember that the book of Revelation was an epistle to literal, physical churches in the first century. That it was written to not merely satisfy curious minds about the future, but it was written to saints who desperately needed encouragement in the face of persecution, and they needed to persevere in this world. This means that for every vision and revelation you see in the book, you shouldn't just have a fascination like these are really interesting things to come, although they are interesting. You and I are meant to reflect each time we read a vision and ponder how it prompts us to overcome in the Christian life. It's to reinstate our confidence in the Christ who reigns. That's the driving impetus of the book. Uh, to overcome. When Jesus speaks to each of the seven churches in the opening chapters, you recall, he repeatedly holds out the promise of reward to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. He says it to all the churches. The ESV says to conquer. And conversely, you remember that Jesus also holds out the threat of judgment. Judgment against those in his church who will fail to overcome. And the idea of Jesus threatening the church doesn't seem like it squares with what we usually hear, but it's what we see in the book of Revelation. It's the same impetus that the book closes with in these final chapters, as we'll see. Last month I taught from Revelation 20, which was a very sobering and solemn passage as we considered The the revelation that John had of a great white throne judgment. When all humanity will be summoned to gather before Christ as judge. And all who were not found in his book of life will be punished for eternity in the lake of fire. Eternal hell. And really, while that revelation that we saw, as sobering and solemn as it is, although it definitely should arouse a sense of urgency for unbelievers to repent and believe upon Christ for salvation, the primary intent of that passage is actually still for believers to consider. Believers are supposed to consider the last judgment. It's presented as a motivation, again, to overcome. Yes, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Yes, it is only the work of Christ that saves us from the wrath of God. However, if we possess this salvation, it's the testimony of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament teaching that we will bear fruit and that we will manifest salvation through our lives. It's possible to have a false assurance. And it will be true of many. Many. In that last day. Jesus said Himself that many will come to Him in that day and call Him Lord, but He will reply that He never knew them. This is what Jesus warns the churches in Revelation. That they not fall away from their calling. And that their lampstands would continue to shine in contrast to the world. True saints must maintain their first love to him as he warns the Ephesian church. They must not succumb to lukewarm worldliness as he exhorts the Laodicean church. True Christians must endure persecution and count the cost like some of the other couple churches were doing. If not, if you're not overcoming, you may arrive at the last judgment and find out from the king that you were never really a part of His kingdom. And so in this way, the the final judgment becomes a motivator for overcoming in the Christian life. I want to be careful with that. It is not the motivator. But it is one that we shouldn't discard. This doesn't mean we're supposed to be dominated by fear step by step in our sanctification, as we know perfect love casts out fear, but rather that we should maintain our blessed assurance by abiding in Him. The Christian who is abiding with Christ and confessing sin and repenting and striving and being sanctified. This is the Christian who has assurance. The Christian who starts to drift and backslide and who becomes careless in a season of life about the sinful patterns they're engaging in. This is the Christian who the warning passages should wake up because they should fear the judgment of Christ lest they fall away. To such a Christian, the, the revelation of final judgment is held before them to wake them up. That's why there are various warning passages. You see it in a book like Hebrews to the saints. As one pastor said, the warning passages for believers aren't meant to scare them to death, but to scare them to life. Now all this to say, John, in revealing this, in telling of his revelation of the the great white throne judgment, doesn't just conclude by saying judgment is coming, therefore overcome, end of book of Revelation. That's not the final motivator. Rather, the book continues with two more chapters with an even more extensive motivator toward overcoming the glory of the believer's eternal dwelling. While judgment is certainly a powerful motivator and has a place to to sort of spark us and wake us up and to help us examine ourselves, it is not necessarily the most compelling It's not enough to have a a negative motivator, but God is kind to give us a great positive motivator. We're not just warned what to avoid, namely the wrath of God, but we're encouraged to remember where we're going. The, The great hope of the glory of God on this earth. This is the ultimate motivation for the Christian life. Because it is the ultimate reality of God's story. Judgment Day is not ultimate. There are some preachers who might thump their Bibles and make it seem like it's ultimate. But I would argue from Scripture, it is penultimate. Meaning it doesn't occur as the end-all be-all. But rather it exists to serve a more ultimate purpose. To prepare the universe for the glory of God in His eternal kingdom. what God does is He purges His created universe from sin and from the curse for the maximum display of His glory and the enjoyment of His saints. This is the chief end of man, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. The new heaven and new earth that we're about to look at is meant to encourage you. It's meant to motivate us in our overcoming. To excite us, to help us battle sin, to help us to have a a loose hold on this present world and to help us persevere. The saint who wants to overcome and gain maturity is to be heavenly minded. That is the hallmark of Christ's most devoted followers. They are heavenly minded. Now I'm about to delve into our five verses but as I do that, I want to highlight that this, does not, that this sets before us a very soul-searching question. As I, as I bring that up, this soul-searching question, and it is this. Are we motivated by a future heavenly home? Are you longing for heaven? Does your heart long for heaven as your home, or... Is your heart tilting to be more at home in the life you have here? For many Christians in the world who are being persecuted and suffering, it's more of an easy question. Of course, they're going to say they want to go to the life to come as God is weaning them from the world. And many saints through history, including the early church, longed for their heavenly rest. However, in the West by and large, it is more of a temptation, I think, for us in our comfort and relative freedoms to often become preoccupied with this world and many times we don't even think it is a vice. I mean, the word worldliness is a vice for a reason. We're meant to be an otherworldly kind of people. This is what sets us apart from the world. The world does not understand a longing for heaven and its glories, because the heart of man does not long for God and the things of God. You hear many people discussing their plans for their earthly home. You hear plans for business enterprises and long-term investments, excitement for vacations and longings for retirement. But not a heavenly home. Mark Twain once flippantly said, You can have heaven if you want. I'll go to Bermuda. That's the thinking of the world. That's not to be the attitude of Christ, people. So I want to unpack that because I think there are also things that sort of do a disservice to making us longing for heaven because maybe our ideas of it are too small. Heaven is our future home And perhaps it is more familiar than you might think. This isn't to say that we should despise God's good blessings here, by the way, and the ambitions we have in this life. But it's that these are not to be our chief treasure, our our chief aims as we go from day to day. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Quote, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends." but will not encourage us to mistake them for home, End quote. <clears throat> so let's delve into our passage, and, and I want to consider this home and the joys that await us there. Before reading verse 1, I, I want to look quickly at verse 5, not to go out of order, but verse 5 sort of gives us a bracket for understanding the first few verses. Look at verse 5 of Revelation 21. Verse 5, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He who is seated on the throne is a, a common theme that comes up in Revelation. It's Jesus himself. And what he says in that verse should rivet your heart in mine. Behold, I am making all things new. And there's a lot packed in that all things that we, that we can't unpack here today. But what I want to do in the remaining time is draw out five things that he has made new. Just five. Five things Jesus is making new. And they're listed for us in the first four verses of this chapter. He will make all things new. This isn't a complete list, but just a, an appetizer. It's a glorious summary. And he says he wants us to behold them. So let's behold them one by one and consider how we can be encouraged to overcome in this world. Verse 1. Look at what John writes. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Number one on the list of things that Jesus will make new in our eternal home, one, a new creation. We see in this verse, there will be a new creation. Now, this might seem like a very basic thing to contemplate for our encouragement, but it's actually profound for us when we consider that perhaps one of the key hindrances to our ability to long for heaven is that we only think of heaven In the abstract, notice it says, a new heaven and a new earth. When we think of heaven, it's often in a very unfamiliar category. And I would submit that that's not exactly how Scripture wants us to long for heaven. When we think of heaven, we often think in some sort of hazy way, like there's there's clouds, there's just kind of fuzziness. There's people singing all the time. And as pop culture seems to plant in our minds, we're just sort of floating and playing harps all day long. And you know, that that sort of spiritualized thinking regarding heaven does a disservice to our longing for it. I think it does a disservice for how we tell the world about it. Yeah, they want to go to Bermuda. Because Scripture gives us something more concrete. When Scripture describes the eternal state, it, it describes in ways that communicate physical redemption. It is a new heaven and new earth. But we're sort of, we sort of think that when we have to think of heaven, that we have to sort of block out the physical. And we, we sing songs like, I can only imagine what it will be like. And that's, there's truth to that. But perhaps God actually wants us to make an attempt to imagine what it will be like because He's revealed aspects of it in His Word. The strictly spiritual abstract idea of heaven actually comes more from the influence of ancient Greek philosophy and Plato than it does from the pages of Scripture. Yes, heaven at this moment is in an intermediate state, and we know that the saints are in a spiritual state, but that's not their ultimate hope. They await physical resurrection. Creation, even, according to Romans 8, groans for a new redemption when the glory of God will be revealed. And our passage here at the end of history shows that the culmination of our hope involves a new heaven and a new earth. It's important to note new heaven and new earth as being joined together as one. Someone might ask why there is a need for a new heaven if, if heaven is perfect. But I think this actually misses the emphasis that's being given. Later on in verse 4, he describes the things that pass away. I, I don't think he's necessarily annihilating all of his creation, but he's renewing it and he's restoring it and he's ridding it of the curse because it was good the main point is not so much that heaven and earth as we now know them will pass away because christ is just you know sick of them it's the idea that he's doing something brand new with them and what he is making is the joining of heaven and earth in a restored paradise But we need to remember why the chasm is there in the first place. Heaven is now separated from earth by sin and death. But a time is coming when the fallenness of this world, after the great judgment, will be purged and heaven, the paradise we once lost, will now be regained and will indeed be new as it exists on the earth. And the earth will be new as it now has heaven upon it. What's happening is redemption, renewal, restoration. And there's an important note added that might make you scratch your head. And the sea was no more. That part might seem like a bummer if you love the beach or love the sea. I want to kind of unpack why that would have been significant. We sort of need a little bit of Jewish background regarding the symbolic nature of the sea. Uh, the absence of the sea is an important phrase because it would have communicated to John's audience and Jews of the day that this new heavenly earth would have the absence of evil and disorder, the absence of chaos. If you do a scripture study of the sea in scripture, even all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, you'll see that it's often a symbol associated with unrest and disorder and chaos. And it's often a symbol of separation between peoples. A separation certainly for John as he was on the island of Patmos. We remember even in the heavenly vision in Revelation um, earlier on in chapter 4 that there's a sea of glass between God and the inhabitants of heaven. And even in the last chapter, in chapter 20, it says that the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Meaning all who were lost and gone, this this realm that was symbolized as disorder, would now give way for what God is doing. And the point here is that this new creation has none of that disorder to characterize it. No chaos, no evil, no separation of peoples from one another, or separation from God. It is Eden restored And localized. I want to mention again that it is crucial that we view our final home as part of a new physical creation. Because I I do think that we sometimes, or Christians tend to, suppress their natural God given longings that God gave us in our DNA. We're not called to deny the physical and then hope for the spiritual. That's actually a a pagan idea and unfamiliar to Christianity that emphasizes resurrection. We're called to long for spiritual things, but also for the redemption of physical things. The redemption of our bodies. This is how he designed us. This is how we're wired. So when we're trying to suppress the desire for things of this world, we might be doing a disservice to our longing for heaven. Sometimes Christians trying to sound ultra spiritual, and they say things like, "Oh, I don't, I don't want the streets of gold. I don't want the, you know, the jewels and all of that. I just want God." And well, yes, we do want God supremely, and if He was only all that there is, we would be happy. But that's not the way Scripture wants us to be motivated. That's not the way God has designed us. It's not wrong to want to enjoy God's created gifts. In fact, it's encouraged and it's God's idea. Jesus used physical rewards and even land often to encourage his disciples toward faithfulness. The New Testament epistles constantly mention the inheritance that awaits us. It wouldn't be repeated so much if we're supposed to deny these desires. Now, we're not given complete details about this new creation, but we have hints of its features, and we don't have time to touch on them, but here's a few. In chapter 22, a tree of life is mentioned, hearkening back to the garden in Genesis. Leaves are mentioned. A river of life was mentioned. Fruit is mentioned. And while these descriptions do seem to have a a symbolic connotation placed upon them, I think it's reasonable to assume these are also going to characterize the kind of creation God is going to make. The God who's doing this recreating is the same God who made the abundance of plants and mountains and canyons and rivers and diverse animal life. This is the same God who is making the new heavenly earth. And it's going to be very good. Put it this way, if you're not persuaded... Think about this. If it was going to be totally unfamiliar to us, it wouldn't be called Earth. Just as our resurrected bodies will be enhanced versions of our current bodies, they're still going to be bodies. So the Earth will be resurrected as an enhanced version of this creation, of this Earth and we're going to have a body like the risen Christ, and Christ in his resurrection walked, and he spoke, and he even ate, we will likely do the same. This is meant to encourage you to overcome. It's to remember that the saints in John's audience were martyred, and this would, of course, appeal to them, that as their world was stripped away, God has something prepared in a new creation. The hope of resurrection of their bodies and a new creation would have prompted them to hold loosely onto the world. And it should prompt us to do the same. The best is yet to come. If this creation that we enjoy, which is tainted by the fall, is so beautiful, what will the creation be that is to come? He continues with more in the passage. Number one is a new creation. And that sort of sets the foundation of what we're expecting. This physical renewed universe. And that would be glorious enough, but he continues. Look at verse 2. John writes that there's more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I want to stop right there in the middle of that verse and just highlight our next point before we even go on. And that's that there is a new society on this new home. So we got a new creation and God reveals there will be a new society. When Christ makes all things new, he makes a new creation. And it says here, a new society is coming to the earth. It says the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. It's worth noting that this is the exact answer to the prayers of the saints through the ages. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It will literally descend. And as Jerusalem was the capital of God's nation, Israel, this will be the capital of the new heavenly earth where the king reigns. And it's important to view it as such because God is revealing to his people that our home isn't entirely unfamiliar to us. It's not just unfamiliar categories. He calls it a city. A city. A city is a place where people dwell together in community. It's localized. It's a place of interaction, of cooperation. Cooperation of building a place where there's multiple homes and neighbors and people are sharing a bit, a place with a seat of government and structure. Now, I know these things are tainted in our fallen world, and many of you love living away from a city. And cities are often met with great disillusionment. But let's note that this is an entirely different city than anything we see here on the earth. Being a city is not the problem. Sinful man is the problem. This city that is coming is not from the earth. It's a city coming straight from heaven, and it says it's from God. I mean, just ponder this. This means that the ideals of a city, such as a a government that functions rightly, neighborly cooperation, interactions, and building will be in their ideal perfected Form. Before getting into the moral implications of this heavenly city, as it's called holy, I, I want to still just camp on the fact that it's called a city. Our eternal home is described as a civilization. Why is this significant? Because again, we often have very abstract, spiritualized views of our heavenly home. And this could be a disservice in our motivation to go there. Scripture describes it as a city. Humans were made by God as his image bearers to use their dominion to build civilization and and enjoy it. And we should never forget that civilization is God's idea. Any bad things we see in it is owing to fallen humanity, not God's blueprint. And you know, once you contemplate this scriptural truth, I, I hope it radically shapes Our view of the world, even right now in this fallen world, there are many things that are not necessarily evil and can be enjoyed. Don't lump everything into sin in the fall. There are many things that are remnants of common grace, things that were intended to be with the dominion mandate. Before the fall, man was told not to just stay in the garden and sing songs to God. He was told that he had dominion, that he was to tend the garden, that he was to subdue the earth as they multiplied. Here's a meditation for you, just just as an imagination exercise, because I want us to fully appreciate the goodness of this city. I want you to imagine that sin had never been committed by Adam and Eve or any other members of humanity, that that life had continued on and they multiplied and filled the earth. What would have developed on this earth with no sin, no curse? We can't know for sure, but I'm going to venture here. I imagine that they would be finding better ways to tend the garden, that perhaps they would come up with better tools, perhaps better ways to garden in, in itself. Perhaps using the earth and its resources to build. Perhaps houses would be built and constructed. uh, Buildings and roads. And as the people started to gather in greater communities, uh, bridges and all sorts of architecture, people would use their creative abilities as image bearers to find ways to make it aesthetically pleasing. Different tastes, different varieties. None of those things are sinful things. They would be done well. And unlike Babel, which tried to just build a city to to make a name for themselves, people would have done it to construct it for God's honor. People would have probably created many forms of various arts, paintings, sculptures, music. Humans would have probably made advancements in the use of the earth's elements and engineering. Electricity would probably be discovered and utilized. God made this earth to be subdued and used for man's good and for his glory. Humans would have developed different forms of recreation and games and sports and I think kayaking and adventuring and exploring. Those are not sinful things. You could even argue that one of the first things man was to do was recreational. Eat of the fruit of the trees. It's God who made otters play. God designed us to enjoy. And it's not sinful. Now, again, this is imaginary, that none of this, is, none of this has happened. But I want to highlight it because we tend to think that when God recreates the world, that he's just going to discontinue everything he set in motion from the old. All of these things I mentioned could have come about by our original dominion mandate. But let's not forget, our original mandate is not going to be erased in the new earth. If you look at chapter 22, it says we will reign with him forever. I mention this because I think we often somehow think that our heavenly home is going to be a place that's very uneventful for eternity. Very stationary. Very static. No, it's going to be a city. It's going to be an earth. And we don't know all that we're going to do on this new earth. And I don't want to speculate too much. But I think it's worth noting that it is a civilization. And God never says he is totally eliminating his his original design for man. You and I will be resurrected to be his perfect image bearers. And it should excite us that we're going to reflect that image better than ever before. It should motivate you and cause you to, to loosen your hold on this world. We want to do big things and we have big plans. That's nothing compared to what eternity has in store. It should motivate you to be joyful about where you are going. Because this is a new society that God has. Jesus said in John fourteen two through three, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This city that is coming down is being prepared right now. And God has a home for you. And he knows every one of his saints' perfect preferences and living, ideal situation. And you are going to bless God when you see what Jesus has been working on. In our home, he makes a new creation. We see that he makes a new society. Third, and I'm going to go quicker, we see in this verse a continued phrase. Look at the next part of verse 2, description of the city. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is a new morality. A new morality. Morality. We have a new creation, we have a new society, and in this world will be a new morality. It is important that we remember that a key feature of this civilization from God, this new society, is that it's going to be holy. I mentioned earlier that cities are often marked by things such as a a seat of government, a place of interaction and cooperation between neighbors. In this fallen world, since the dawn of time, this is not really what we see doing, going well in cities. Cities have often been marked by a lack of harmony in these things. Neighbor with neighbor. Governments that become corrupt. In this fallen world, it seems that the larger the city, the, the more wicked and godless and corrupt it becomes. Los Angeles. New York. New York. Las Vegas, Paris, ancient Babylon, ancient Athens, ancient Rome. These were big cities and even have impressive things in human achievement. But morally and spiritually, they are perverse. They're godless. They're immoral. But not God's city. Not the city from heaven. It is the holy city. It has a holy government, because the holy king rules there. It has holy inhabitants, holy neighbors, holy angels, with glorified minds. It has holy relationships and holy interactions and holy actions. It's described with the familiar metaphor of a bride being made ready for her husband. Beautiful and totally pure. The idea being that it will be riveting. Like in a wedding when the bride comes through the doors and they they forget the poor fellow up here and everyone's looking at the bride. This is God's society. Everything pales in people's attention. The saints in John's day were no doubt distraught about the immorality of Rome. The Roman Empire was anything but holy. There was always a temptation to one or two things, to either succumb to it or rather be discouraged by it. But Jesus wants them to overcome and consider the city to come where their name is. This vision of the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the holy society, was meant to encourage them to persevere. And as we look at our dark society, our dark society, government and our dark, na- our, our dark humanity that gathers in, in civilization, we too should be encouraged to, to loosen our grip on this world and to hope for the holy city to come. And don't forget that it's not just the absence of society's sin that should excite you. Even better, how about the absence of your sin? This is one of the believers greatest hopes that should be encouraged encouraging one of the greatest things to look forward to in our heavenly destination is that we will live forever in relationship to God and each other without one sinful inclination no sinful words no sinful attitudes no sinful thoughts or imaginations No sinful motives. Not even sinful inclinations. No temptation. No inward battle anymore. No proneness to wander and forget God. We will be the best versions of ourselves as God made us and created us to be. The Christian who desires to overcome sin should keep this in mind. After seeing these things, John continues, not with what he sees, but with what he hears. And it's more glorious than anything he's actually seen so far. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. This is number four. We've seen that there will be a new creation, a new society, a new morality, holiness. And now we have a new communion with God. A new communion with God. When we take communion and we commune with Him in this life, it is temporary as we look forward to the day when faith will become sight, when he will drink the fruit of the vine with us in his kingdom, as he said. This is the ultimate communion. Greater than a city coming down is that the God who dwells there is coming down with it. This is the greatest restoration of the original creation. This is the Bible coming back full circle to the garden, but even better. That God, who at one time walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, will come back to dwell with man in that special communal way. Some versions more specifically say that the tabernacle of God is among men. This is the culmination of history in all redemption in creation. The glory of God on the earth. At the present time, Romans 1 says that creation reveals His invisible attributes. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. But now will come the time, at this point at the end of the story, when the glory of God itself, with its greatness, its majesty, its divine beauty, its Shekinah brightness will be enjoyed by His people in plain sight. The next chapter, chapter 22, verse 4, says, they will see His face. Heaven of heavens. Habakkuk 2.14 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And note, by the way, it's not just that his dwelling place will be with man as though he's, he's still just aloof. That would have still been grand, by the way. He could have decided he's going to descend and still stay at the top of a mountain like Sinai. He could have decided that he would still be behind a veil like the Holy of Holies. He could have decided that it would only be God the Son veiled in human flesh as he will be there. But no, God the Father, God in his full glory, is going to come and descend. And his arrival will be so grand that the voice that's speaking, that John hears, has to emphasize it in more than one way. It's like he can't just find one way to put it. It says he is dwelling with man. Then he clarifies further. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Our communion with him will be personal. Worship will be properly restored on the earth for eternity and the receiver of worship will be restored on the earth for eternity. And I want to remind us that worship is not merely songs of praise. Although we will undoubtedly ascribe praise to him in songs, and Revelation reveals that, We need to still get rid in our minds of a static kind of eternal existence. God has always intended that worship be more than just one form. He wants it to be dynamic than just a worship service. Worship is a way of life. Worship was this way in the garden. And that's how it will be restored. Randy Alcorn taking a little liberty to speculate what it will look like, puts it like this. I just like the description. He says, quote, At times, we may lose ourselves in praise, doing nothing but worshiping him in song. At other times, we'll worship him when we build a cabinet, paint a picture, cook a meal, talk with an old friend, take a walk or throw a ball. In heaven, worshiping God won't be restricted to a time posted on a sign telling us when to start and when to stop. It will permeate our lives, energize our bodies, and fuel our imaginations. End quote. Now again, I want to be careful because we don't know for sure what we're all going to be doing. But suffice it to say that we're still going to be living on a new earth. We're still going to be doing things. It says in other, t- other places, we're going to be serving him. There's actions that will take place. It says we will be reigning. There will be responsibilities. We will walk the earth in our glorified minds, and everything we'll do, we do will be an act of worship and an opportunity for communion with him. I mean, again, that's what, that's what the garden was like with Adam and Eve. Eve. They lived, and they walked, and they tended the garden, and they ate. They enjoyed the fruit of the trees. God would come and spend time with them in the cool of the day. And just to further highlight that we will always be enjoying God's glory, the city in this chapter is described more than once as having transparent qualities. Verse 18, you could look at it later. Verse 18 says the city is pure gold like clear glass. It says the idea of clearness more than once. And I think the significance of this is that no buildings, no walls, nothing will be built that will be able to block the radiance of God's glory from filling the earth. If anything, these various jewels will probably refract the light of God's glory in ways that we can't comprehend now. Perhaps we'll see new colors we've never seen before. It's interesting that when Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12 that he went to heaven and came back, he says that he saw things unlawful for him to utter. Now, in one sense, it could be argued that he was just saying that he wasn't permitted to speak of them. One could maybe argue that perhaps he just couldn't describe what he saw. It's like the glory is like he couldn't put a category on it but someday we will. And this should compel us to overcome. This great promise of dwelling with God and him, him dwelling with us should compel us to sweeter communion with Him now. If this is our chief end and our, our greatest happiness and fulfillment, then every other alternative in this life that takes an, its place as an idol in our hearts, it should be repudiated. It should be resisted fiercely as being rival to Him. Idolatry in every form should be rejected. Not just because we know it's wrong to put things before God, but because we sincerely have affections for Him and we have come to love Him supremely and His glory truly satisfies like nothing else. I'm going to proceed to our last point and then close. Having considered that God will personally dwell with us in communion with His glory, He takes an action. Verse 4 says what He will do. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away number 5 in this new home we will have a new life a new life really a new quality of life because we already have life eternal life is knowing god and the one whom he has sent but it will be in its complete form Having gone over the positives of this eternal dwelling, it's also announced what this new home will not be like. We've already covered that it's going to be somewhat familiar, just enhanced. But it's also going to be very unfamiliar because it's not going to have the curse. It will be a world free from every remnant of the curse since Genesis 3. It will be a life free from the effects of the fall that plague our human condition. It says that God himself will remove this from our experience. No more tears. No more death. No more mourning. No crying. No pain. All of these things are things that the saints know very well. And they go through them in this world. We may have salvation from God. We may have him as our supreme joy. But it is still in the midst of many griefs in this life. It's in the midst of pain, emotional and physical. It's in the midst of death. Deaths we grieve as others pass from us. And also facing our own death. Second Corinthians 6:10 says, "We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing." And the idea is that even in our Christian joy, it is mixed with sorrow so long as we are here." John was experiencing sorrow, writing this vision. He was serving his exile on the island of Patmos. He was estranged from the churches. He had endured the martyrdoms of his friends. The believers in the churches were also enduring many griefs, persecution, trials. Christians through the ages, and up until now, even in our church, are very familiar with shedding tears at various trials. But this won't be in the world to come, not in this new life that you will have with God. There is such richness of this good news in a single word in this verse, the word every. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And you know why he'll wipe away every tear? It's because he himself, in Christ, bore our griefs. He bore in himself all of these effects of the curse through his life, And on the cross. He is the Lamb who was slain. He wept. He grieved. He felt pain. And he experienced the full sting of death. And when faith becomes sight and our glorified state matches our positional estate, there will be no trace of the curse, no already but not yet, no tension. There will only be everlasting blessing, everlasting life, and everlasting praise to the one who demonstrated such love to deliver us and kindly bring us to the place he's preparing for us. Who would not want to overcome for such a king? What in this world could hold you from overcoming Everything pales compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And verse 5 forms a fitting conclusion to our time. Verse 5 gives a confirmation that we saw earlier. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You can trust these words because they're from the Lord himself and he's preserved them. This hope should fuel you and I to conquer. Verse 7 says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. We're not just supposed to have warm feelings about this home to come. We're called to action. The idea that being too heavenly minded makes one of no earthly good, that's not a biblical concept. The most heavenly-minded saints have done some of the greatest good for the kingdom of God. The hope of our heavenly home should drive us to endure any trial. It should compel us to conquer and advance in our sanctification. It should motivate us to be a people separate from this world and to hold on to this present evil age loosely. It should draw us to communion with God, who we will spend eternity with, and it should fan the flame of our zeal and love for our eternal King. Let's pray. Father, no eye has seen and no ear has heard what wonderful things you have prepared for those who love you. We confess, Lord, how earthly-minded we are, how... We have minds set on earth and we have very limited capacities to appreciate what you've prepared in our home. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves as wanderers, as pilgrims, that you would spur us on to long for our dwelling with you. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you of this greatly undeserved privilege of citizenship in your city. We pray that you would empower us to overcome each of us where we are at. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.